Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. If you are using one of the Pew Bibles, uh, you will find these verses on page 882. This passage is a continuation of Luke's account of Jesus' final meal with his disciples. Last Sunday, we heard Jesus' warning that one of those seated at the table with him would betray him. And we watched the ensuing argument among the disciples over which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom. As we saw, Jesus' warning was actually meant to challenge his disciples, to to challenge them to see their weaknesses accurately. Jesus wanted them to each see themselves as a potential traitor. Not that they might despair and lose hope, but so that they might know their weakness and cry out for the help that they so desperately needed. Jesus knew that if they endeavored to follow him in their own strength, if they relied upon themselves alone, they would fail. He knew their only hope of remaining faithful was humble reliance upon God's empowering grace. And so he challenged them to to see themselves as they really were. He challenged them to, to see themselves as weak as unable to follow, as prone to wander and leave the one they love. But of course, as we saw, they didn't respond appropriately to Jesus' challenge, at least not at first. Instead, they almost immediately began arguing with one another about which of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And it was for this reason that Jesus challenged them to rethink their idea of greatness. He showed them that that true greatness in the kingdom consists not in being a lord or a benefactor, but rather in serving others in the name of the one true king. In God's kingdom, it is the servant who is truly great. And it is the servant who will inherit the kingdom and be entrusted with its rule on behalf of the true king. But now... In the passage before us this morning, having challenged the disciples' false notion of greatness, Jesus returns to the reality of their weakness, suggesting that he thinks they still don't get it. And this time, he addresses all of the disciples by focusing specifically on Peter, whom he says will deny him three times before morning. Let us read it together. Luke 22, beginning at verse 31. This is the very word of God. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. 
Father God, we do come before you humbly this morning, asking that your Holy Spirit would be at work, using your word to sanctify us and to equip us for your service. Father, may you cause this word to put down deep roots in our hearts and to bring forth an abundant harvest in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are basically three things that I want us to see in this passage this morning. First, I want us to see the reasons that Peter will fail. I want us to see the reasons behind his failure, his his denial of even knowing Jesus. But second, and somewhat ironically, I want us to see the reason Peter won't fail. I want us to see the reason that his failure will not be full or final. And then third, I want us to see what Jesus tells Peter to do after he has failed and returned. So let's begin with the reasons that Peter will fail. We see this first in the way that Jesus addresses Peter. Look with me at verse 31. Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon. Now we've seen this before, this this repetition of names. The fact that, that Jesus says his name Twice, it it adds weight to what he is about to say. It indicates that that what he is about to say is something that Peter truly needs to hear. It is is something like a parent today using their child's full name. When I was little and I heard my dad say, Philip Lennon Keynes, I knew that what he was about to say was important. I knew my dad was was serious, that I better give serious attention to whatever it was that he was about to tell me. That is something like the effect of of Jesus saying to to Peter, Simon, Simon. But what I really want you to notice is not simply the repetition of the name, but the name itself. Jesus here calls Peter Simon. Now it's a running joke in my family that I often get my kids' names wrong. Wrong. I, I seem to get them wrong more often than I get them right. I, I will call Hannah, Abby, or even sometimes Jacob or, or Thomas, and I do the same thing with the others. I, I call Abby, Hannah, and I call Thomas, uh, Jacob. I'm not sure what's wrong with the wiring in my brain, but for some reason, the first name that comes out of my mouth is often the wrong one. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is not simply getting Peter's name wrong. Remember, Simon is his Name. It is the name given to him by his parents. It was Jesus who changed his name to Peter. So the question is, not why did Jesus get his name wrong, but why does Jesus choose here to call him Simon? It's not as if he regularly switched back and forth. After changing his name in Luke chapter 6, Jesus never again calls him Simon except here. So the question is why? Why does Jesus here use Peter's old name? One possibility, and I think the most likely possibility, is that Jesus uses Peter's old name because for Peter, this is a moment of great weakness. Jesus had had given Peter his new name after he had confessed him as the Christ. And And Jesus said to Peter, you are the rock. That's what Peter means. You are the rock upon which I will build my church. And so so Peter is a name that that suggests strength and 
stability. Now, we, we need to understand that, that Peter wasn't the rock by himself. We don't believe that Peter is the first pope or anything like that, but it was Peter as, as representative of all the apostles, confessing Christ as Lord that was to be the rock upon which the church would be built. Paul echoes this in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But we need to understand that, that nevertheless, even though it's not Peter by himself and it's not Peter in himself, but rather Peter as a confessor of Christ, still the name Peter suggests strength. It, it suggests stability. And that's why Jesus doesn't use it here. At this moment, Peter is anything but strong. He is anything but stable. This is for Peter a moment of profound weakness. But let's be clear what that means. Peter's weakness is not a lack of confidence. In modern stories, the, the eventual hero's moment of weakness that always comes somewhere in the first half of the movie, the, the, the hero's weakness is usually self-doubt. The hero's weakness is that he doesn't believe in himself. He doesn't believe that he can do it. He doesn't believe that he has what it takes. And, and what he needs to do is regain his confidence. He, he needs to regain faith in himself. That's decidedly not what is going on here. Peter doesn't lack self-confidence. His weakness is not self-doubt. Look again at verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And we know from the other Gospels that, that he adds to this, even if everybody else fails you, I will not. Clearly then, Peter doesn't lack self-confidence. On the contrary, he, he pronounces himself ready, ready to follow Jesus even to death. He is supremely confident. He isn't doubting himself at all. And so for Peter, this is not a moment of self-doubt. But it is a moment of actual weakness. In fact, contrary to modern theories, it is Peter's self-confidence that is making him weak. Peter is weak because he is relying on himself rather than upon the one who is his strength. And this is, I believe, why Jesus calls him Simon. Jesus is reminding him that he is only Peter. He is only the strong and stable rock when he is in a posture of humble reliance upon God's empowering grace. When he's standing on his own two feet, he's merely Simon. As disciples of Jesus, I think that we must learn from Peter's mistake. We have not been called to be apostles, but we are servants. We are called to be servants of the King. But in ourselves, we are not sufficient to the task. We, we do not have the skills or the strength or the competencies necessary to, to serve well. Service is hard. Service requires sacrifice. That's why Jesus says that following him feels like dying. How's that for an evangelistic tool? Come, follow Jesus and die. 
That's what it feels like. It, it feels like dying to follow Jesus, to serve well, to follow Jesus well. A person must die to themselves. To serve well, a person must kill his own ambitions and agendas and devote himself entirely to the service of another. This is the heart of Jesus' teaching about true greatness that we looked at last Sunday. To be truly great, we must be servants of all. But left to ourselves, we don't do this. We, we can't do this. Jesus himself said, for man, it is impossible. He, he said that about the, the rich young ruler who had turned away from him sad because he was unwilling to deny himself to follow. Left to ourselves, our selfish, sinful natures will rule and overrule. Left to ourselves, we will cling to our rights and assert our own interests. You may wonder whether that's really true of, of everyone. I would suggest to you that it is. But, but even, even if you don't believe it's true of everyone, even if you think there might be an exception here or there throughout history, don't you know it to be true of yourself? Don't you know this to be true from your oft-repeated experience? That every time you want to do good, evil lies close at hand as Paul says in Romans chapter 7. You have the desire to do good. You have the desire to truly serve, but not the ability to carry it out. Again and again, do you not find yourself serving yourself rather than the interests of others? Has this not been your experience? Maybe not. Maybe you're still not convinced. Maybe you still don't see that apart from God's grace, your, your life is ruled by self-interest. And if, if not, let me ask you this question. Does your service of others have a limit? Is there a point at which you say, I've done enough, no more? And if so, what is that limit? When do you believe that you have done enough? Is that point defined by your own well-being or by the well-being of your neighbor? Do you say no more when doing more would bring you harm or cost you too much? Or do you say no more when it would be a harm to your neighbor? I think, if we're honest, most of us have to admit, I think all of us have to admit, that the point at which we stop, the point at which we think we have done enough, is the point at which it will cost us too much. But if you think about it, if we stop when the costs get too high for us, what's still in control? Is it not still our self-interest? If we are willing to serve the interest of our neighbors so long as it doesn't cost us too much, and only up to that point, is it not our self-interest that are ruling and overruling in our lives? You have to understand that Jesus has called his disciples and he has called us through them to something different. 
Jesus calls us to put the interests of others ahead of our own. And therefore, the only limit to the service we are willing to offer to our neighbors ought to be a concern for our neighbor's good. Keller says the only thing that ought to limit our mercy is mercy. Yes, there are times when mercy must limit our expressions of mercy. There, there are times when, when serving this person would require us to neglect this person, this person whom God has, has put closer to our responsibility. There is a, a moral calculus that says we must do what we are able to do with those whom God has, has woven most uh, centrally into the fabric of our lives. That is true. We are finite. We can't do everything. And so there is a time when we have to make choices. There is a time when doing good for someone or what appears to be good for someone will actually do harm. There's a, a great book called When Helping Hurts that helps us identify when helping someone will actually do more harm than good. And it's true that, yes, we, we must care for ourselves. If we never stop, we will not be of any good to anyone. These are all true considerations, but don't miss the point. It is our neighbor's good and not our own self-interest that lip, limits our endeavors to serve. It is their good that our lives are devoted to. This is the life of a servant of the king. And this is the life for which Peter pronounced himself ready. <laughs> this, is what, this is what Peter was saying. I'm ready to follow you, Jesus, even to death. I am going to be Jesus' greatest disciple. I'm going to earn my seat at his table. And because he trusted in himself, his fall was great. We need to see this. We, we need to hear the warning that we may not follow in his footsteps. We need to learn day by day, hour by hour, in the ordinary course of our lives, to walk in humble reliance upon the empowering grace of God. We need to learn that only by His grace will we truly be set free to renounce ourselves and serve others. So this, this is first. This is the first thing that we must see in this text. We must see our weakness. And we must recognize that until we see our weakness, we will not be able to stand. But it is not only our weakness that threatens us. The second thing I want us to see in this text is, is that not only are we weak, but we have a strong enemy. Notice what Jesus says to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Satan has demanded to have you. Peter is in trouble, yes, because he is confident in himself rather than humbly dependent upon God. But his trouble is compounded because he has a powerful enemy intent upon his destruction. We need... We need to see this. For, for modern people, it is, it is hard for us sometimes to accept that Satan is real. It is, it is hard for us to, to accept that, yes, we have a, a real enemy. 
We have one who is working against us. Think of Peter's description. There is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. How foolish must we be to rely upon our own strength, to rely upon our own competencies. We, we can't stand against the ordinary temptations of this world. How much less can we stand against our enemies? You are weak, and you have an enemy who is far stronger. But we must be careful not to misunderstand his strength. We must be, be careful not to misunderstand what Jesus is actually saying here. He says that, that Satan has demanded to have you. And demanded is the correct translation. It is, it is the word that Jesus used. The word does not simply mean to desire, as the King James puts it. Nor does it merely mean to ask for permission. The, the word has the clear sense of making a demand, demanding that to which you have right. That's what Satan is doing. He is making a demand. He is demanding that God allow him to sift Peter like wheat. However, it would be easy to misunderstand his demand. It would be easy to assume that, well, if he's making a demand, he must have a right. But that's not the way this works. Satan's demand in no way implies that he actually has a right to what he is Demanding. We, we see this in children all the time, don't we? You've probably had your own children make demands of you. We, we've seen children make demands of their parents. And parents know, or at least they ought to know, that the fact that their child is making a demand in no way suggests that their child has a right to the thing that they are demanding. We, we know the way that this works, and it's the same here. Satan is making a demand as if he has a right, but this in no way means that he has an actual right. Satan has no right to demand anything from God. He is in no position to compel God to do anything. And this is a vital point. It's, it's important for us to see this because it reminds us that our God is never bound by anything outside himself. Our God is a God whose independence is perfect. We like to speak of being independent. We like to encourage people to be independent. It's one of our American virtues, but we are never really dependent. Even the most independent among us are still dependent on a whole host of things outside of our control. God is in no way dependent. God's independence is perfect. As we teach our children to say, He is always perfectly able to do all His perfect will. His purposes cannot be thwarted. And we need to know this because it is God's perfect independence. It is His perfect sovereignty over all things. It is His absolute freedom to do all His perfect will. That is the foundation of our hope. If God is not sovereign, our foundation crumbles. If God is not sovereign, we have no assurance. How can a God who does not rule and overrule guarantee the outcome? But, because He is sovereign. Because He is independent. 
because he is always perfectly free to do all his perfect will, we may have a perfect assurance. We may know for certain that he will indeed work all things together for the good of those who love him. That is your hope this morning. You serve a God who rules even over your powerful enemy. Jesus describes Satan as a strong man bound by one stronger. Yes, he's stronger than you, but the one with you is far stronger than he. And that is our hope this morning. But it raises, it raises an important question. If God is perfectly sovereign, and if Satan has no right to demand anything from God, then why does God give Satan what he asks for? It's clear that, that Satan is going to get what he's, he's demanding. It's, it's clear that Satan is going to have the opportunity to sift Peter like wheat. But why? If Satan has no rights and if God is absolutely sovereign, why in the world would God give him what he is asking for? To begin answering this question, I think we must look more closely at what it is that Satan is demanding. Look again at what Jesus says. He says, Satan has demanded to have you. Why? That he might sift you like wheat. What is sifting? Maybe you don't know. Maybe you need to look it up on Google and watch some of the videos that I watched this week. But when you, when you sift, sifting is that process. It's, it's the process by which the wheat kernel is separated from the chaff, from that inedible skin, something like the, the husk on an ear of, of corn. Sifting is the way that those are, are separated, and the good wheat is set to one side, and the chaff is cast off or burn, burned. And so it is a, it's a violent process as the wheat stalks are, are beaten and, and shaken and pressed through the sieve. But think about it. It's also a refining process. It's a process whereby the chaff is removed from the wheat. Now, I think we may safely assume that Peter's sanctification is not Satan's goal. Satan is not demanding to have Peter that he might sift him like wheat because he wants to remove from him the chaff. He, he wants in no way to refine him or to, to purify him. On the contrary, his goal is to destroy. He is seeking whom he may devour. But, because our God is sovereign, because he is free to do his perfect will, he can use Satan's intentions for his own purposes. And I think that picture of sifting helps us to understand why God grants Satan the freedom to do his work. What Satan intends for evil, God will use for good. What Satan intends to destroy, God will use to sanctify. God will use Satan's attack on Peter to remove the chaff of his self-confidence. To, to teach him to rely humbly and fully upon the empowering grace of God. It's not what Satan intends, 
but it's what God will do. And I think for us, this ought to be a great comfort. For like Peter, we are weak. And we are opposed by a powerful enemy. But our God is sovereign. And He intends to use even the blows of our enemy to sift us, to sanctify us, to refine us. He intends to work all things together for our good. And if you keep reading, you find out what that good is. He intends to work all things towards this end, that we would be conformed to the image of the glory of our Savior. He is at work. And this is the reason that, that Peter will not fail. That his faith will not fail completely. He will fail, yes, in some sense because he is weak. He will fail, yes, in some sense because he has a powerful enemy. But ultimately, finally, fully, his faith will not fail because God will use Satan's attack for his own good purposes. We see this even more clearly in what Jesus says next. Notice what he says. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And we're going to have to return to this next Sunday, but I just want you to, to just soak in that for a moment. Here we have Jesus speaking to Peter, saying that Peter is about to deny him three times before the morning comes. And yet Jesus knows, Jesus knows that Peter will not ultimately fall away. Why? Has he, has he seen something extraordinary in Peter? Has he seen something in Peter that he didn't see in, in Judas? Has he seen some inner strength, some resilience? Of course not. That's why he calls him Simon. The one standing before Jesus is weak. The one standing before Jesus is unable to stand upon his own two feet. The one standing before Jesus will cower before a servant girl, denying that he even knows the Savior. Then what is the source of Jesus' confidence? It is this. I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. And I know that my heavenly Father will not fail to allow me to bring to completion the good work that I have begun in you. That good work is not yet complete. We see that clearly in his denial. But God isn't finished with him yet. And he isn't finished with you either. You will have your Peter moments. Not at one climactic time in your life, but daily. Daily, in, in little ways, you will deny that Jesus is your Savior. In little ways, you will look to other things. You will submit to the passions of your former ignorance. You will, you will go opposite of the way that Jesus is calling you as, as Jonah fleeing from Nineveh. We will have our Peter moments. 
And in those moments, we will wonder if we have disqualified ourselves from an inheritance in the kingdom. And at those moments, we need to remember that we never qualified ourselves in the first place. Why are we qualified? Because He has qualified us. Why will we stand? Because He has prayed for us. He will keep us, as Peter himself will later say. He will keep us by His power through faith. Why is your inheritance guaranteed? Because He has guaranteed that He will bring you to it. And that is your hope this morning. You're, you're more like Peter than you know. And while that is humbling, because it means that you are capable of the, the, the grossest forms of denial, it is also encouraging because it means He has prayed for you and He will keep you and He will never turn you away. But that when you have fallen on your face, you can hear Jesus' words, turn again, come home. I stand ready and willing. For some of you, you need to do that for the thousandth time this morning. You need to, to come home to Him again, remembering His grace. For some of you, you need to do it for the first time. You, you have never turned to Him. But whether for the first time or whether for the thousandth time, you need to hear Jesus say, I have prayed for you. And I stand ready and willing to receive you and to strengthen you that you might serve faithfully in my kingdom. Do not trust in yourself. Do not rely upon your own gifts or abilities. But turn to Him in humble reliance upon His grace asking that He would qualify you for an inheritance in His kingdom. For He is the only one who can do it. And because He does, because He qualifies people like Peter, because He qualifies people like us, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. Father, we, we are humbled to see ourselves in Peter. Maybe, maybe even a little ashamed. Maybe, maybe there are some here even this morning, Father, who even wonder if, if they have gone too far, if they are beyond the reach of the Gospel. Father, I pray that by Your Spirit You would speak to them this morning and You would remind them that Jesus has prayed for them, that He is pursuing them, and that He will receive them and walk with them if they will simply turn to Him. Father, grant to each of us this morning, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, that grace of repentance unto life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.